Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic today is a piece of legislation that has generated no lack of conversation generally and especially in the Christian community. It is the Equality Act, and I have two very special guests with us today. Uh, first is uh, Shirley Hugstra, who is um, who is president of the what, what, CCC. You and Shirley, I'm going to ask you to explain what the CCCU is because that's a lot of letters. It sure is, and it's uh, it's the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. We're almost 45 years old, and we've been uh, in that space in Washington D.C. for a while in order to be really the leading voice of Christian higher education in the public square there. And uh, I think the founders really were. Uh, prescient to to know that 45 years ago we would be in the situation we are today. Interesting. And then our second guest is David Dockery, who's uh, a longtime friend. I've known Shirley a, a long time as well, uh, who is, among other things, uh, founding president of the International Alliance for Christian Education, past president of the Evangelical Theological Society, uh, a, a Chair, a former chair of the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, and now is theologian in residence at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I had to take one big long breath to get through all that. So, uh, David, it's great to have you with us as well. Thank you, Daryl. It's a joy to be with you and with Shirley uh, to talk about these important uh, matters today. I'm uh, grateful for your leadership with the Center for Cultural engagement there at Dallas Seminary and for the opportunity to participate in this conversation. Well, thank you both for being with us, and certainly this is an important topic. Before we turn to the Equality Act specifically, uh, I'd like to ask each of you, and this is a question I open all my uh, podcasts with, and I'm from the South, so it's going to be ladies first. Shirley, how did a nice gal like you get into a gig like this? Well, it was a calling by God, Daryl. What happened is I was an attorney in New Haven, Connecticut, and a partner in a law firm, and a very active alum of one of the CCCU schools. In fact, I had served and was serving on the board of trustees of that school. And I was sitting in my living room, and the position of vice president for student life came. uh, I knew about that, and I heard God say to me, well, Shirley, what about you? And I had been involved with student life, you know, years ago. I was very surprised by that very direct prompting in my life. And I was a little resistant because I really loved my law practice. But uh, what I believe is that God knew that there would be a situation where I would become president of the CCCU, where I needed both my legal background and my student life and campus background. And I was the vice president campus leader for 15 years on that campus. And actually, most of the issues that we're dealing with at the CCCU level, um, I have a familiarity with. But it was God who saw the long picture 
and I was hoping that maybe I would get a no. I'm like, why would they want a lawyer from New Haven to be the vice president of student life at this campus? I thought, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to say yes uh, to the interview, but then they're going to say no. And then it'll be a win-win. I'll have been obedient, but I won't have to move. Uh, but lo and behold, they said yes, and I count that very careful shaping of my vocation as preparing me to be of service to Christian colleges and universities today. And how long now have you been president of the CCCU? Almost seven years. Okay, very good. And David, same question to you. How did a nice guy like you get into a gig like this? How did you, how did you end up doing what you're doing? Well, I've been involved in administration at a couple of institutions for a long time before uh, coming to this role. As you know, I had the privilege of serving as the chief academic officer at Southern Seminary back in the early 1990s and moved to the presidency at uh, Union University in West Tennessee. I uh, served in that role for almost two decades before uh, being named president at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, served in that role for nearly six years. Along the way, I was deeply involved with the uh, CCCU uh, for almost a quarter of a century. Uh, participated in every activity that they offer, I think, and served on the board for eight years and was board chair for two and uh, worked with Shirley very closely on the uh, new membership criteria back in 2014 and 15. And so she's a wonderful friend and grateful for her leadership there. Uh, but uh, several of us in uh, 2019 began having conversations about how we could connect Christian education more broadly than just uh, Christian colleges. Uh, the CCCU is primarily focused on liberal arts colleges and liberal arts-based universities. And uh, so we started having conversations with K through 12 entities, with Bible colleges, with some gap year programs, with seminary leaders, including seminary where you serve, and found that we were all facing very similar challenges. And so a kind of a loose knit uh, coalition network came together under this umbrella called an alliance, the International Alliance for Christian education that connects all sectors of Christian education with the goal of unifying, strengthening, synergizing our work so that we can link arms together and try to address some of the uh, challenges today. Our role is not so much a public square role as is the, that of the CCCU. Uh, we see our role more as enabling campuses, doing the work of faculty development, leadership development, those kind of uh, opportunities. So we've only been in uh, business now for about 15 months compared to the 45 years of the CCCU, but uh, we, we hope we can make a contribution to the overall work of Christian education in this country and around the world. So the International Alliance really uh, deals with education at all levels. That's actually news to me. I had thought it was exclusively either colleges or universities. No, we have uh, K-12 institutions, uh, Bible colleges, Christian colleges and universities, gap year programs, and a double handful of seminaries. Oh, wow. Well, uh, so so let me turn to you, Shirley, and ask this question. Most people, when they think of the CCCU, think about, oh, uh, well, it's just a group of like-minded Christian schools that get together and make an effort to network on the level of, of um, 
of Christian education at, uh, at, at the higher ed level. Uh, but actually, you do more than that. When you said your, your goal is to represent these schools in the public square, talk about what that is, because I think that for a lot of people, that they won't understand that part of the CCCU. Thank you, Daryl. That the landscape has changed around how people feel about religious organizations. I think we would all agree about that. And so one of the things that is very distinctive about Christian higher education is that we have countercultural views, uh, historic orthodox views about human sexuality and about some other issues, uh, along with this idea of discipling students, shaping students so that their hearts uh, and minds and bodies all are uh, more Christ-like after four years than before. And so one of the things that we realized, especially in the maybe starting 10 years ago, is that when, when, we, when we would go to the Congress, the Senate, the House, uh, people didn't really understand what and who Christian colleges and universities were, but they were making a lot of regulations. Higher education is very highly regulated. Uh, and so we thought we really need to tell the story of all of the marvelous things that Christian colleges are doing, both in their cities, they're indispensable in small towns and in large towns. Uh, we're training up the next uh, level of leadership for the world. Um, it is a service-based kind of education where um, we know that it is not me first, but God first. Um, so we tell the story in the last, oh, I would say uh, six or seven years, we have really been able to place the story, Second Chance Pal, prison education, immigration reform. Now we're working on vaccination um, uh, kinds of opportunities um, into the public square so that you need to be something that people want to protect. So one of the things that we do is we preserve, protect, and advance Christian education. But if the culture at large doesn't understand the contribution of Christian colleges and universities, they're not going to want to protect it more as much. And in addition to that, um, we do professional development at all levels of key leaders on our campuses. So communications, key leadership development, and then, um, of course, the advocacy work, which is so for, foremost now, and especially under the President Biden administration. Yeah, and, and the thing that I find interesting, you know, I, people may or may not know that I serve on the Wheaton board, um, is the amount of inner city work and that kind of thing as uh, as students are gaining experience on how to deal with uh, different life problems that society faces, that kind of thing, that many schools are very, very committed to as a part of their service. We have a stat that shows that Christian college students do more service learning work than any other college student in the nation. And of course, that comes out of our theology and love for God. Yeah, exactly. So um, so I think this is very, very important. And then, David, of course, uh, part of Christian Ed is uh, walking into these spaces and thinking about how to walk into these spaces. So um, when, you, when you're thinking about this from a Christian education point of view, I take it you see these um, involvements that Shirley just outlined as pretty important to uh, what, what a Christian might be regardless of their vocation in terms of the training that they come out of a Christian college or university with? Well, I think it's extremely important and I uh, think uh, must be a priority for our calling, not only to think in terms of uh, cultural engagement, but as you have so well described, we need cultural intelligence uh, and 
ways that uh, allow us to participate in the culture uh, with kindness, civility, um, bringing neighbor love into the conversation in ways that uh, allow us to live out the great commandment as we seek to be salt and light and have a, a positive impact on the communities in which we are involved. Okay. And you know this, Daryl, uh, you know this already, but um, uh, Dr. Dockery is one of the foremost experts on worldview, Christian worldview, and how that applies in the curriculum uh, and on campuses. And, and he, as you know, has written numerous volumes about that and is uh, such a leader uh, and that's why um, the CCCU honored him at our uh, 2018 international event with an award uh, because of his profound con contribution to just that topic. Well, I mean, um, and this is part of the reason why I took so much time introducing both of you is because uh, you don't walk into this space as novices. You have been committed um, to representing Christian institutions at an institutional level well and have been deeply involved in organizations that have done that. And so uh, so it, uh, it, it's an important uh, important for people to realize the experience that you bring to this conversation. Well, I'm going to do a hard turn now. I, I, I don't know whether it characterizes a hard turn to the right or to the left, but uh, I'm going to do a hard turn now into the Equality Act itself, uh, which is a current piece of legislation which, um, at least in the note that I have, passed the House in February, on February 25th, and which means that it's now sitting in the Senate. And what most people don't realize is, is that the Equality Act is actually, and I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so hopefully I get this right, is actually a bill that amends existing legislation, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which of course is one of the most significant pieces of legislation probably ever passed in the history of our Congress. Um, and it is designed, well, I'll just, I'll just read the summary that I have here that comes from Congress.gov. This bill prohibits discrimination based on sex, sexual orientation, gender ide identity in areas including public accommodation, facilities, education, federal funding, employment, housing, credit, and the jury system. Specifically, the bill defines and includes sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity among the prohibited categories of discrimination or segregation. The bill expands the definition of public accommodations to include places or establishments that provide, one, exhibitions, recreation, exercise, amusement, gatherings, or displays, two, good services or programs, and three, transportation services. The bill allows the Department of Justice to intervene in equal protection act actions in federal court on account of sexual orientation or gender identity. The bill prohibits an individual from being denied access to a shared facility, including a restroom, a locker room, and a dressing room, and that is in accordance with the individual's gender identity. So that is the bill as... Um, as written and passed in its in its current form, I think it's built off a larger bill that actually has the detailed amendments um, to the Civil Rights Act in it that uh, was discussed in the previous Congress. Well, in the 2000 what 19 to 2020 Congress, uh, the 116th Congress. This is the 117th Congress bill, HR 5. So. 
Um, let's just dive in. Uh, Shirley, I'll let you go first. Um, tell us about this act and why um, the CCCU is concerned about it. Yes. So I think um, most Christians who um, value religious liberty would agree that the Equality Act as written is one of the most devastating bills to come into Congress in terms of trying to strip out the religious exemptions that have been part really of our society since the beginning of the nation. And why it is dangerous is it takes the 1964 Civil Rights Act uh, and then it overlays it with an expansion of uh, sexual orientation and gender identity um, civil rights. Uh, but it's one thing to want civil rights uh, for a group of individuals. And what we need to remember is that the Supreme Court has already been granting these civil rights in court cases. So we're not, the Equality Act actually is in tandem with some of the recent court cases, in particular, the Bostock case, Bostock versus Clayton County, which was decided in May of 2020, actually gave um, hiring rights uh, and, and civil rights to LGBTQ people, which is also part of the Equality Act. And what we are in dismay about with the Bostock decision is the fact that it didn't, it, it said there are religious exemptions, but it just said these are going to clash. So here's what the here's why the Equality Act is dangerous for your listeners. Um, just on just really on on a on a basis of everyday sort of working relationships that you have if you're a person of faith. And, um, first of all, it uh, it affects Title VI, um, and that is about uh, funding. Um, in Title VI, uh, there is there is uh, very few exemptions, and so if you have an honor code, the Equality Act would pass, and you have an honor code. That, um, or a student life code that holds to traditional morality standards on marriage and sexuality, uh, and you did not change your standards after the Equality Act was passed as written, you would actually lose potentially your federal funding. That is all your Pell Grants, your guaranteed student loans. It's really billions of dollars. Uh, the other thing the Equality Act would do is under Title VIII, uh, the Equality Act does not protect religious housing standards. So of course, uh, our schools have uh, uh, standards for men and for women. Um, they have separate uh, institutions. They, they allow for more privacy. We have no alcohol or drugs, that sort of thing. But it would, um, the Title VIII protections would be um, undercut. And then of course, employment lawsuits because of religious hiring, which I said in Title VII. The Equality Act allows lawsuits based on religious hiring and a religious standard. So, we all know that Christian colleges and universities and other organizations hire individuals that uh, fit with their religious standards, and those things will all be affected. But in a major way, um, it also eliminates um, what's called the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which in the Bostock case, um, we had uh, Justice Gorsuch write that it is an uber statute, meaning that it is the sort of legal a theory under which organizations such as the Hobby Lobby um, uh, stores brought a claim that said, you know, my religious conscience should be able to have a place in American society. So the Equality Act is looking to advance LGBT civil rights, but to minimize or eliminate the current kinds of religious protections that exist in law. 
Okay, David, anything you want to add to that? And then I'm gonna and then I'm gonna kind of walk through kind of the history of religious exemption briefly. So, um, anything you want to add to what Shirley said? Shirley's description was excellent. Uh, I, I would add that also it, it would affect Title IX and the definition of sex by turning understand a biological sex uh, in, into uh, sexual identity or you know sexual orientation or gender identity therefore broadening the understanding of, of the definition of, of sex and in doing so HR uh, 5 or the Equality Act creates a, a protected class for people who are experiencing a same-sex attraction or uh, gender discordance and uh, this, these, this is very the reason that uh, Shirley can say that uh, that the the Equality Act has been called the most invasive threat to uh, religious liberty of any uh, kind of legislation that has come along. It's because it's the first piece of legislation in American history that does not seek to protect religious freedom. Uh, in, in any aspect of, of the legislation. Okay, so so let that, me let me go ahead. Really go ahead. Hard to comprehend. First piece of legislation in our entire history that does not seek to protect religious freedom in any aspect. Now, Shirley mentioned that the religious freedom uh, part of our society has existed from the founding of our nation. So it, it's in the Bill of Rights. Um, so um, that's the first point. It's been uh, protected and defended um, throughout uh, our history and for the most part at the legal level and at the legislative level. Um, Shirley alluded to um, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, which I believe passed the Senate with something like a 97 to 3 vote. It was a extreme uh, majority vote, if I remember correctly. Do I have, right. do, and uh, unanimously in Congress. Sorry, passed unanimously in, in the House. Yeah. So I mean, so this was the, and this is you know 1993. So what is that? Uh, um, seven and twenty-one. I got to do quick math. Twenty-eight years ago. Uh, by uh, Congressman Chuck Schumer and signed into law by President Bill Clinton. Yeah, I mean, so you, you think about that. Well, one of the things that the Equality Act would do is to not provide any protection to claims made under the Equality Act. Uh, I think uh, Shirley referred to it as a as a as a Uber. Uh, legislative piece, um, and so um, so that gets taken away as well. So so really, in the Bostock decision, as she mentioned, notes that there is a clash here, and that the decision, if I remember correctly, the Bostock decision, doesn't um, resolve that clash. It simply says it's there, and in effect, whispering very very quietly, and we know it's coming. You know that that uh, that there is around the corner this challenge that might be coming in which religious liberty and discrimination law are on a one track path as trains heading in opposite directions towards one another. Is that a, a fair characterization? And Shirley, I'm going to ask you that question because you're also a lawyer, which means I could have botched what I just summarized on the one hand, so you get the chance to we correct it, or and or you can comment on what I'm raising. Yeah, you did a good job with that, Daryl. Here's what, here's what this whole story shows us. It's a 30-year story 
of when Chuck Schumer, as uh, Dr. Dockery said, and Ted Kennedy uh, pushed the uh, um, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which restored uh, actually uh, an understanding about the place of religious liberty after uh, Justice Scalia had ruled against its application more uh, broadly. And so they were trying to fix something that the Supreme Court had done, and they did it overwhelmingly because they recognized the importance of protecting religious entities. Now, now fast forward 30 years, and there are bills in Congress, in addition to the Equality Act, that actually want to say we are not going to proactively protect by these statues uh, the religious, and it really is a sense of... um, proactive protection. Now, we, we do not get rid of our constitutional protections, right? But what we know is that when you have a statute plus a constitutional protection, you have the best possible interpretation by the Supreme Court. That has been proven over and over again when the Supreme Court has a statute plus, and the Equality Act people know this, right? So they are looking to give what they would say in an equal playing field, what we would say is given where culture is at, um, now a minimized uh, playing field for the uh, religious freedom um, goals that people might have in this country. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So the challenge here is is that there's been a, a significant, well, I think the reason we're here that we have to recognize it's a part of this 30-year story is there's been a significant cultural shift yes. in the perception of these categories and in the understanding of these categories, a debate that exists, et cetera. And one of the dangers, and I'm, I'm going to throw a theory at you and let you all play with it, one of the dangers in in disputes about rights when certain people have not had certain rights is that when they gain those rights and they gain access to them, the danger is the pendulum swings in the opposite way, and the risk is the people who from whom the, from whom the perception is the rights were gained or won from now end up being on the other end of of the of the hard edge and risk being put in a position of a minority status. Uh, and the suffering what the minority used to suffer from. It seems to me that we are moving rapidly in that direction, and Christians are the are are the object of that uh, of that target. Not not just Christians, but also other people who have religious reasons for 
being hesitant about the overall recognition of of these spaces in in spaces that include their religious convictions is I've I've tried to do that gently and as descriptively as I can um, again is is that is that the 30-year story cultural story that we're up against I think you've described it well Daryl and I think uh, we're exactly at that point uh, and, and along the way several things have happened in the public conversations that have uh, helped to push us in this direction and in addition to uh, you know legislation and Supreme Court uh, decisions but you know one of my favorite sociologists over the past 30 years was Peter Berger the brilliant uh, thinker at Boston University who for years told us about changes that were taking place regarding secularization, pluralization. I think we paid attention to him when he talked about those two things, but a third part of his conversation, equally important, was the rise of privatization. And so, so what we have now is uh, those who affirm the Equality Act say that they do so without taking away uh, the place of faith or the place of religion, but it's because their definition of faith or religion is limited to a private act and does not include the public aspect of religion as we would understand it, of, of living out one's faith, whether Muslim, Jew, uh, Roman Catholic, or evangelical. And so uh, the, 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 the privatization issue undergirds and underscores this entire uh, conversation for a way that uh, people can both affirm the Equality Act and say that they're not uh, harming uh, religion or religious freedom. And of course, the hard part of this is is that whether you have a religion or not, you're a citizen of the country. Exactly. And if you form an organization that is around your religious beliefs as a group, you've deprivatized that discussion uh, by being involved with a group. And that group has as much right of protection as that group as any other group does. And is that Again, I'm trying not to oversimplify this, but it seems to me that that's a pretty simple idea that actually walks into the very space that we're talking about. There's such a long history of the religious sector in the in the public square that it's really undeniable. And so I would like to make sure we don't concede that point. Uh, uh, David made a very good point in this, and, and you have to listen when people speak, whether they say the right to worship. So anytime you hear the phrase, the right to worship, they're signaling exactly what David mentioned, which is we're not taking away your right to worship. We're not gonna impose on your churches, but we aren't going to let you live out your faith convictions if it clashes with a predominant cultural idea that is current today. Now, um, I think that there's a lot of uh, room for us preserving that religious expression in culture, because actually as Christians, we don't ever take off our coat uh, of Christianity. We, we bring our whole self and here are some positive things that are happening. There's a number of businesses who know that religion is important. Um, some of them that you think, my goodness, they're so progressive, but they have started 
employee affiliation groups in their companies because they know that when people of like faith gather together, there's actually a plus to that. And the other thing that this conversation um, asks us to examine mm -hmm. is whether or not we believe that there's LGBTQ discrimination. And um, actually, we can differ on that. And there's stories, there are individual stories about whether there are or aren't. But in the Bostock case, the court found discrimination in hiring. They had three examples, and they actually said LGBTQ people are discriminated in housing, and that's why they set up a new definition of sex. So, you know, we have a conservative court that makes that finding. And then as Christians, we should ask ourselves, how have we responded to a group of people that feel that they are discriminated against? Just that question. Do Christians want to be involved with making a remedy if you have been discriminated against? Now to your example, Daryl, what we don't wanna do is have that pendulum swing and say, well, maybe there is, according to the Supreme Court, um, a need to address discrimination, but you don't throw the other aspects that have made the culture so excellent away because there is a potential clash. You need to work for each other, even with deep differences. So I'm, I'm, I've got about a dozen different ways I could go on where we are in the conversation, but let me try this one. Isn't uh, one of the challenges that is a part of this conversation the fact that someone out of a secular background, out of their own worldview, has very little space for religion and sees very little value in religion? Okay, whereas the person who occupies a religious space, and now I'm being generic, I'm not just talking about Christianity, um, sees that as being central to the way they view life in the world. And so not only is there a collision between religious liberty, if I can say it that way, and discrimination, but the track is crowded, okay? Because I've got a secular train and a religious train that are headed in the same opposite directions on the same track. Yeah. Is that and, and so all the characterization language about homophobia and other things that come up when this gets raised, I think come out of that space as well as the discrimination in religious liberty space. Is is that a, a is is that a again a fair way to summarize kind of what we're up against and why the discussion becomes so difficult between the various factions that are involved in this? David, I'll let you take that one. Yeah, I think you're. I think you you've uh, described it well. I mean, it's it's exactly what you do in your cultural intelligence book, and uh, it is the way that uh, for us to understand why uh, there are these differences uh, in in the culture, and give us the kind of uh, pause button so that we can at least understand. Uh, how we got here and, and why these conversations are, are taking place. Without understanding what you've just described, uh, th there is no way, no, there's no, no place for us to, to, to move in for some kind of engagement. So the question is, can uh, people who live and orient their life secularly and people who live and orient their life religiously exist mutually in a society. I mean, uh, is in the end, we've got to figure that out, right? Well, there has, well, to, be, there has to be a place for principled pluralism 
of some kind in, in our culture. I mean, it is it has been embedded within this uh, conversation for over 200 years. I think we have assumed it without necessarily uh, articulating it or, or understanding that it was there. And then an, another challenge in this, and then I'll come to you, Shirley, another challenge in this has been that culturally we have probably been in one place in our past, but we may not be in that same place now. That's that 30-year story that we just went through. And so that additional adjustment is another factor. I don't know. I've been working with a metaphor of the railroad tracks. I don't know if we're on railroad tracks with this or what's surrounding the railroad tracks and where we're headed. But the point is, is that is that, that shift has changed the nature of the conversation sufficiently that the conversation itself has changed significantly. Am I right, Shirley, about that? It certainly has. And this idea of uh, principle pluralism or uh, something that I've been working on with um, others around covenantal pluralism, this idea that you do have to be intentional about saying something that might have been implicit is now has to be made explicit. Mm -hmm. And the um, explicit nature of it is that, you know what, we have deep differences. And I cannot view you as my enemy, and I don't want you to view me as your enemy. Um, We have to find ways to actually acknowledge the deep difference, but not try to extinguish each other. Actually, we need to, because of um, virtues that we hold dear in America, hold dear in our faith, uh, people hold dear as uh, good individuals, good citizens, uh, respect, humility, um, protection. Uh, We need to operate those virtues for the well-being of others without the need of compromising our own beliefs. You know, um, we're not, the United States is not a church where you have a governance function where you have all of the freedoms to say, this is what we believe. In America, this idea of covenantal or principled pluralism is really the answer going forward. And so something that has been percolating for a while, I think as Christians, we need to be champions for this idea of holding on to our beliefs, recognizing deep differences, and then saying we're going to find ways that you're not uh, disadvantaged and we are not disadvantaged. Yeah, you know, I think about all I think about all kinds of analogies as you raise this, um, and that is that, you know, the church itself is supposed to be a place where people gather together because they share certain religious and moral convictions that don't exist generally. So it's a special space. I like to call it a sacred space because that's, in one sense, what it is. In one sense, God is in every space, and so every space is sacred. But there's a sense in which the church is not the world, thinking biblically, is not the world, and is a special place for people who are committed to walking with God can do that and do that well. The analogy that comes to mind is the way many minorities have to function in a majority culture, in which they function in the culture at large, but you see them gather together in spaces that they get to define and to some degree control uh, in the midst of their existence that allows them to be all who they are as opposed to the way they have to function perhaps when they're in general society. And so um, thinking through that, at least as a working model, I think is an important part of this conversation. Uh, David, what do you think about about uh, this idea of uh, – what was it, Shirley? You, you didn't use the word principled pluralism. Uh, co- covenantal pluralism. Covenantal uh, pluralism. Yeah. What do you think yeah. of this idea, David? 
Well, I think we're talking about something very similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are. Uh, just perhaps using different uh, adjective to describe uh, the, the recognition of the place of, of pluralism within our uh, society. And I think that your analogy about uh, minority culture functioning within a minority culture is a good word for us uh, as evangelical Christians, recognizing that we probably have to think in terms of being a cognitive and cultural minority as we function in, in the culture moving forward. Okay, well, we're coming up to the end of our time. I had a second part of this I was going to do that I'm going to abandon because there's no way to get into it without getting uh, – there's no way to get into it adequately in the time that we have left. So I think what I want to do is if you each could say one thing of significance to people who are hearing this conversation about the Equality Act, the nature of the challenge of the Equality Act, et cetera. What would that be, and what advice would you give to people as they think about this space? And David, I'll let you go first, and I'll let Shirley follow. I think uh, we, I would want uh, fellow believers, and by that I, I would say people of faith, Muslims, Jews, and Christians, to understand uh, the impact of the Equality Act on all aspects of life, and particularly how it might influence uh, education and benevolence organizations. Uh, it has uh, it is directed in such a way that uh, it is impossible to think about our mission, our legal standing, uh, finances, funding, a cultural impact uh, in the same way should the Equality Act move forward. And therefore, I think it is a reason for us all to join together and provide a common voice uh, to educate our friends, colleagues, uh, fellow brothers and sisters uh, to to understand the significance of uh, this legislation that is currently sitting in the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. Surely? Unless we... While continuing to live out our faith in a very faithful way, demonstrating neighbor love and showing kindness in in every opportunity we have as we participate in this conversation. Right. Well, I concur with what David said, and I would add this. You need to be involved with your legislator and express your disagreement with the passage of the Equality Act if it doesn't take into consideration all of the ways that religion plays such an important role in society. And then um, ask your church, sit down with your church group and say, what are the stories that we can share about the work of Christian organizations that really make a difference? Um, the number of hospital beds that are in Christian organizations, the way in which Christians are always at the relief sites. I think they said in Texas, although this wasn't um, a set about Texas and one of the major hurricanes, it was actually faith-based relief, release relief groups provided the most effective services to people who are stranded in that situation. Um, we need to talk about the, serv- the service learning uh, aspects of Christian colleges and universities. The fact that we serve um, 
first generation students in a much higher percentage that are we're, uh, we're afford uh, affordable um, education. But then we also have to look at the, uh, the gospel rescue missions. We have to look at the, uh, the publishing houses. Uh, but we have to tell the story, not just about LGBTQ difference, but tell the story about the positive influence of faith outside of the church. Um, and then they will get a reason to say, you know what, we really don't want to eliminate. Here, take this. School lunches, school lunches in the um, Jewish schools, the Christian schools, the Catholic schools, the, uh, all of those schools, student lunches would not be allowed anymore. Do you know how many schools are feeding the hungry? And that's, you, you, they should not vote for that. You do not want to take school lunches out of the mouths of hungry children. That's the kind of story we need to share. Well, this is this, this has been a fascinating discussion. The part of the discussion we didn't have that we may want to come back to down the road is okay. If not the Equality Act, then what? But um, but for now, I think um, giving people kind of an overview of kind of why this is an important conversation, what's at stake, the nature of the opposing forces that are aligned, and uh, and why it's important to get that. That those tensions on the table and to some degree pursue a way of trying to sort it out is an important thing to be saying to people at what is certainly a most challenging time and has been a most challenging time uh, for our country in this space now for several years in a, in a context that we as we've documented has shifted significantly over the last 30 years. So I want to thank you Shirley and David for helping us kind of negotiate this space um, and hopefully this has been been helpful to people. I want to thank you for for taking the time with us that you have. So grateful to be with you. Grateful to be with you, David. It's a privilege indeed. Blessings to both of you. So I want to thank you for uh, being a part of the table today on this topic. If you are interested in subscribing to the show, wherever you listen to podcasts, feel free please feel free to do that. If you want to leave a review about how you found this conversation helpful, that's helpful to us. We look forward to having you again on the table where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.